well done. Well, good morning. My name is Nathaniel. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm part of the team here at Oasis. And it's great to be unpacking this passage. First, I want to say a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers who are here or joining us online. I hope you've had a really great day so far. And especially happy Mother's Day to my mum who is joining us. So great to have you visiting me, mum. Now, Mother's Day is a great day and it's great to have all the kids in the service. Uh, and today, as you just heard from our passage, we're not digging into the, the many, many parts of the Bible which, which show us the, the blessing of motherhood, the blessing of mothers, and how important and valuable mothers are. But we are digging into a question which I'm sure that I've made my mum ask uh, possibly too many times. Uh, the, the question of what on earth is wrong with this world, or probably this disrespectful child in particular, what went wrong? But seriously, and I, I want to address this question seriously, because it is a serious question. Um, there is a big and pressing question, which is answered in Genesis 3 and through the many other parts of the Bible which pick up this theme. A question which I'm sure that we've all heard or asked at some or at many points in our lives. What is wrong with our world? Because we all know that there is something wrong, don't we? You know, whether it's things that we see happening around the globe, news reports out of Ukraine or Myanmar, for instance, or many others. Perhaps the, the evil acts of individuals, you know, people who prey on the weak, who exploit the vulnerable, or those who turn a blind eye to wrongdoing. And perhaps the reality that there is something wrong with our world is felt most keenly when we face hurt or sadness or pain in our own lives or the lives of those we love. I'm sure that we know broken trust and, and damaged relationships, the devastation of disease, the, the cruel twists of fate which upend lives. You know, it's a bit of a gear change from the joyousness of Mother's Day, but perhaps for some of us, these are themes and tones which, which today has already reminded us of. I'm sure that there are kids here as well who, who know that you've, you've felt sadness and you've felt hurt and maybe things have gone wrong and, and that you know too that there is something that, that isn't right with our world, that those things shouldn't happen. Whatever and wherever it might be, there truly is something in our world which is not the way that it should be, something deeply wrong that doesn't fit. And the interesting fact, I think, I can say this quite confidently, is that whether you're a Christian or not, whether you even reject the idea of a God at all, you've got to recognise that this is true. I'm, I'm sure that we can all agree that there are things which happen through the world that should not happen. You know, where does this instinct come from? Where does this belief that there's, that there's something not right originate? According to Genesis... It is the memory of a long-lost reality. That there was a time when the world was not this way. And that we look forward to a time when the world will be once more whole. That this is a damaged world. That there is a dark thread that runs not only through the world around and other people, but also through our own hearts as well. A chaotic feebleness, which is what the Bible and Christians refer to as sin. 
Now, we're exploring the big storyline of the Bible, uh, God's Word, in, in a series which is called The Bible, the, the story which makes sense of life. We're looking at how the Bible fits together and how it shows us, explains to us what happens in our lives, helps us to make sense of it all. Last week, Adam explored creation, how the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 shows us why and how our world was made, the ultimate answer to our origins. We saw that humanity were created as God's special people, to live in God's special place that he made for them to rule over, that they were under and with God's close, personal rule and blessing. If you missed that, or the first sermon on what the Bible is, I highly recommend checking them out on our church website later on. Now this week, we are looking at what went so badly wrong, when God's people rebelled against him, deeply damaging the people, twisting the place which they were made to rule over, and separating them from the close, personal presence that they enjoyed with their God. This is an event which we call the fall, hence the title there. Humanity's fall from the glorious heights of close personal presence with their maker. You may be familiar already with the events described in Genesis chapter 3. Maybe you've actually heard or read these words many, many times. But let me retell that story. Let me highlight a few key parts along the way of the events described in the first half of Genesis 3, which we just read, and the consequences of those actions, which we hear about in the second half of that chapter as well. Before we'll then see how that connects to the big story of the Bible and how that relates to our lives today. So those are the three key headings we'll explore this scene with. First, and, and mostly, we'll spend a lot of our time in, in what went wrong. And then we'll talk about how it fits and what it means. And as we do so, you know, there's many questions we can ask when we look at what went wrong in the world. Many questions we can ask about Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to get to them all today, um, because I'm sure that you want to go home and spend some time with your mums and, and, in, and enjoy the rest of your, your afternoon. But there are many questions we could ask. And if you're left with more questions, we would love to help you answer them. So please get in touch with one of the team or, or a Christian friend to talk through any more questions you have. But first, let's cover what went wrong. Looking at Genesis 3 to see what we can learn from, from that story. We just read verses 1 to 13 there. Let me draw out a few key parts and, and tell you about more what ha how that relates to, to the rest of the story in the second half of the chapter. So last week, we saw God was at work creating the world. At the end of that process, he made Adam, the first human, to, to care for, to rule over creation. He was entrusted with this world that God had just made. And Eve was then created out of one of Adam's ribs to be his partner in this work. But then it goes wrong. Genesis 3 verse 1 introduced us to that new character, a talking snake. Now, who is this? You know, where, where did this character come from? What's, what's going on here? Genesis 3 doesn't tell us very much at all about this figure, but fortunately, through the rest of the Bible, we are given a few more key details. This snake, this serpent, is identified as Satan, a figure who pops up 
at numerous places through the Bible. We're not told much about this the Satan, this, this enemy of humanity. We get a few key details, but we don't know a whole, de- whole heap about where he came from and, and who, how he was made and, and how he became what he is now. But we do know a few important things. First, he is not eternal. That this, this enemy, this Satan, this serpent was made by God. In fact, that he was made by God as an angel, and not just any angel. He was created to lead all of the angels in worship of God, but that at some point he led a large group of angels in rebellion against God, a rebellion which failed drastically, because the Bible never gives any support for some idea of cosmic good and evil always balanced in an eternal struggle. No, the the Bible shows us one God who is the maker who reigns over all things. You know, Satan, this this enemy, he's strong, but he's nothing compared to the God who made him. God is in control. God is outside of time. He is totally powerful. He, He has not lost power over anything, and he is completely good and loving. So Satan was defeated. He was cast out of heaven, but he strives to bring harm to those who God loves, wherever he can. And now... He seeks to tempt God's people in this world which God had made to rebel against their maker. And Satan starts in the obvious place. Because when God made people, he placed them in a paradise, this beautiful garden of Eden. And in that garden, he placed a tree. Well, he placed a lot of trees, uh, but one particular tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave humanity the command... Do not eat fruit from this tree, otherwise you will surely die. Something which was not even, a, not even a concept they could experience then in this good world. Now this, obviously, makes an opportunity for God to go wrong. You know, why did God do it? Wouldn't he be better off just not making the tree and none of this would have happened? Well, God did not create evil and God did not want his world to be broken. He did not desire it. It's not something that he likes. But also, God did not create robots. He did not force his people to follow him. And so, he gave them a way out of goodness. He gave them one thing, one thing they were commanded not to take, not to touch. One way that humanity could rebel against their God. You know, if there had been nothing for humanity to do to demonstrate their distrust of God, then there would have been no way for them to demonstrate their trust of God. The tree provided that one opportunity to show their allegiance to God. Now, a very simple task. There's no long pilgrimage. There's no huge long list of things to avoid. It's just the simple command to leave the tree alone. And somehow, before the snake even enters the picture, Adam and Eve find themselves at the foot of the tree. So the serpent puts his plan into motion. He seeks to twist God's command. He distorts God's word and he questions God's goodness. Did God really say that you must not eat of any tree in this garden? Is what he says, questioning whether God's provision was even good. Now, Eve sets him right at first. You know, she replies saying that it was only the fruit of this one tree that they weren't allowed to eat. 
And so the snake pushes further. He starts to question God's character, God's goodness. He says, you will not surely die if you eat that fruit. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like God, knowing good from evil. You know, as if God is trying to keep something great away from his people. Satan tempts them with pride, the desire to be like God. In effect, he's saying here, God's word is not clear, it's not true, and it's not fair. And he's been making that same claim ever since. Now, these tactics sadly work as they continue to work and have worked many times since. Eve takes some of that fruit, touches it, takes it. She gives some to Adam and and both of them eat. And with that first sin, that first intentional rejection of God, the world was suddenly changed. Much, much for the worse. So we then just have to pause and ask the question, why was that so terrible? All the brokenness, all the hurt we see in the world, this, this separation from God, why was that such a bad thing? What was wrong with just eating a bit of fruit? Well, it was wrong because it was an intentional disobedience of God, an intentional choice to reject Him. But there's even more to it there. What was the name of that one tree? It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that's a term which doesn't simply refer to knowing the difference between what is right and wrong, but to deciding for yourself what is right and wrong. Adam and Eve, they obviously knew right from wrong, correct? They knew it was wrong to eat of the tree. They knew it was right to follow God. They already had an innate sense of right and wrong. But by eating the fruit, they were saying, from now on, We want to be the ones in charge. We want to set the standard by which the world should win. We don't want to go by God's rules. We want to make our own rules. We want to be like God. They sought to take God's authority and to make their own rules. And hasn't that been the pattern of human rebellion ever since? So then who is ultimately responsible for this fall? Who, who, who is to blame? There are those who say that, according to this Christian fable, God should be blamed because he's the one who made the tree knowing full well that people would eat from it. Others might say that it's actually the serpent's fault. You know, humanity didn't really do too much because he, the serpent's the one who came and lied to them. Well, no. The cause of the fall is not located in God. He didn't make evil. In fact, he warned humanity against it. He gave them a clear instruction. Neither can the cause be found in the serpent. You know, while the temptation provided the opportunity for that fall, he didn't force Adam and Eve to do anything. They had all the information they needed to know to follow or to reject their God. Rather, humans voluntarily chose to enter into rebellion against their God. So Genesis 3 does not describe some sort of divine negligence, you know, God irresponsibly putting humanity in in harm's way, but of people choosing to ally with angelic evil in rebellion against their maker. What then is the fallout of the fall? How does God respond? Well, God made the world. He owns the world. He would have every right to simply erase those who rebelled against him to remake the world, to fix it all up, to put new people in charge, to start again. But instead, God not only allows them to live 
to continue living in this world as, as, as broken as it is. But he enacted a plan to fix the problem and to save his people. In the second half of Genesis 3, God outlines the consequences of the fall. This rebellion has cursed the earth and its people and they're sent away from God's presence. And God also speaks in judgment against the serpent, promising how the serpent and the evil that he represents will be crushed. So last week, as we said earlier, we saw God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Now, all three of these relationships are broken. God's people are separated from their God. You know, the punishment fits the crime there. God's people turned away from their God in rebellion, and so God now turns away from them in judgment. That warm friendship which they enjoyed with their maker is, is now broken. You know, when he draws near, they hide from him because they're ashamed. You know, we read in verse 8 there, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden at the cool of the day. You know, in Queensland, we get this beautiful, cool time at the end of the day in summer. Everything seems so still, so beautiful. Just imagine walking with God in the cool of the day. But this walk with God had been broken. Instead of joining him in the walk, God's people, we see, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Doesn't that just highlight all that we've lost. God's people are splintered. The harmony between men and women is, is broken. They make coverings to hide their bodies from each other. And it's not long before they start squabbling, trying to shift blame for what went wrong. God's place is corrupted. The effects of the rebellion against God extending to all which humanity ruled over, all of creation. The relationship of harmony between people and the world is broken. From now on, it'll be a struggle for people to control the world. Now, God describes this consequence saying, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Work on the land will now require sweat and hard labor. And God's people are sent out of Eden, that beautiful garden with God's design. You know, this is done for their good, just by the way, so that they would not be able to eat from another tree which was in the garden, the tree of eternal life. Because if they, having been separated from God, were to eat from this tree of eternal life, they would be condemned to forever live in a broken existence. So God's people are sent away into this now twisted world. And they're not leaving arm in arm, you know, jollily leaving to their happily ever after to enjoy an existence independent from God's oppressive authority. No, they, they leave in shame. They're provided clothing by God. He dresses them, but they're walking towards a hard life away from him. And, you know, given the, the blame game which just happened in Eden, I imagine that if there had been two gates out of Eden, we would have seen Adam and Eve storming out opposite ends, muttering to themselves, not to talk for a couple of decades. But no, they, they go out into a life of spiritual death, the life into which all of us were born. As Vaughan Roberts writes, they continue to exist physically, but spiritually they're dead, they're cut off from God's presence. And it is only a matter of time before their physical existence also ends. 
That's from God's Big Picture, the book which Ben just mentioned earlier. We highly recommend getting a copy of it and, and highly recommend having a look through it. It's what we, one of the resources we've, we've looked at closely for this series. But that's not the end of the story. It's not all doom and gloom because there is a glimmer of hope on the horizon. That leads us to how it fits, how this connects into the big story of the Bible. Well, the fall shows us what is wrong with the world, and it also gives us a hint as to how it can be made right. That solution is hinted at in the curse that God gives to the snake in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God promises that a descendant of the woman would destroy the serpent, being bitten by him in the process. Now, that's a very vague promise, a bit of a metaphor, a bit of an image. There's not too much you can draw out of that, but that promise is built on and expanded and detailed at many, many points throughout the books of the Bible which follow. As the story goes on, we're given more and more detail about this promised figure, who, as we will learn, would not only crush the serpent, but would defeat death itself and reverse the effects of the fall. In fact, this is what the storyline of the Bible is all about. Spoiler alert for the rest of the series. It's about a return to right relationship with our God. So how can we get back to Eden? How can God's people return to God's place under God's close personal rule and blessing? Well, this story is what we're going to continue to explore over the next few weeks, but a bit of a spoiler. God is the creator of everything. God is also the remaker, the fixer of everything. You know, we're all born into a world which has been damaged by human rebellion against God, human sin. And all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we have or we continue to add to that rebellion against God. The only way for this to be solved would be for a perfect, sinless, unbroken human to then pay the penalty for the sins of those humans which are imperfect and broken. But not only that, this person would have to be much more than merely human to be able to pay for the sins of many, many, many more than just one broken human. And this being would also need the power to defeat death. That's something which only God is able to do. Now, being in church on a Sunday, it probably doesn't surprise you to learn, to hear, that Jesus is that saviour. That Jesus is fully God and also fully human. That God took on full humanity. God the Son became fully human, that he lived a perfect life, that he died in the place of all who would place their trust in him. His death on the cross was the serpent's bite, and his resurrection is how he crushed that serpent, crushed evil, crushed death itself in the process. Adam's sin brought down the whole world, but through Jesus' salvation, will the world and all of his people be made whole. We read about this in Romans chapter 5. It's a beautiful chapter which I'd love to encourage you to read and dwell over. And, and towards the end, it, it summarizes its point saying, just as one trespass 
resulted in the condemnation of all people. So also, one righteous act resulted in justification, being made right with God, and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus has paid the price for the sin, for the rebellion of everyone who has, does, and will place their trust in him. And he promises that if we do place our trust in him, we will be made part of his recreation. He will start to work in us now and that he will bring his work to completion when he returns, making, it, making his people and his world back the way they were meant to be. And that's a free offering. You know, as we heard in that passage just then, just like we are born before we do anything, we are born into a world broken by sin, so God does not demand anything of us to be made right with him. He asks only that we trust in him. It's a free gift by his grace alone. I hope that that's a gift which you've accepted. I hope that's a gift which you know. I hope that you've started to experience what it's like to be made new in Jesus. If you haven't, please chat to a Christian friend. Talk to them about what this is like. Come and chat to one of the team. We'd love to share more about Jesus with you. We want you to know this life that is found only in him. Now, this sounds grand and amazing and good, but the obvious question then is, if God is at work fixing the problem, if Jesus' saving work is so much greater than Adam's sin, why has Nathaniel just spent 30 minutes talking about it? Why would we even need to know about the fall? Like, it's cool, it happened, but that's all in the past. Jesus has fixed it, that's what matters. What does this whole fall thing, what does Genesis 3 actually mean for you and for me today, living out our lives, wanting to know and follow Jesus? Well, let me wrap up by pointing out a few key effects of how understanding the fall shapes our lives today. First, let me point you to our series title. The Bible is the story which makes sense of life. And understanding the fall really does make sense of our lives. You know, we live in a culture which often tries to tell us that we are basically good. There's nothing inherently wrong with us. No part of us can be described as evil. But when we take a serious look at our lives, at the world around us, at the temptations of our hearts, we know that's not true, right? We face the same problems today that people have faced ever since Eden. People make the same selfish, wrong choices that people have made ever since then. In fact, the more people we have in the world, I'd say, the more that we can get wrong. There's this, there's this myth of, of moral progress, the idea that as we advance technologically, so also we advance morally, and our culture just becomes inherently better and better. But I don't think we can seriously claim to be ethically better than those who came before us. I mean, look at the marriage failure rate. Look at the prevalence of human trafficking. You know, I don't go into... I'm sure that you've seen the details, adults, of, of what goes on in our world, what our culture supports. Look at the, the widening economic inequality. 
think of the billions of people in the world who have so much less than us. When we look into our lives, even, when we look into our own actions honestly, these are decisions which we keep making. There are things which we keep on doing which we know are not good. Not all of our actions, but we can't claim that everything we do is perfectly altruistic, perfectly good, perfectly well-motivated. The fall means that we are broken. You know, that Western myth that people are blank slates, that you can make yourself whether good or bad, it doesn't stack up to reality. Now, brokenness does not mean that there is no good. You know, as, as we heard last week, we are made in God's image. And that is a shattered image, a broken image, but broken in the way that a mirror is broken. There are still bits which reflect the image that should be there, but it doesn't do it well. There are crack lines which run all over the place. And this is what Dr. John Dixon calls the human paradox, that humanity is simultaneously the glory and the refuse of the universe, capable of beautiful good and terrible evil. When we understand the fall, we understand what went wrong with ourselves. And that extends from our own hearts. We understand that sin is the complicating factor in all of our relationships, our relationships with other people, with our world, and most importantly of all, with our maker, with our God. Life without God is a life without harmony. We all know, I'm sure, and those who have lived for longer than me know better than me, I'm sure, that relationships with others, even those who, who follow Jesus, are not perfect. As we saw with Adam and Eve, embarrassment, And blame and conflict happened then, and they continue to happen today. You know, there are good things in relationships. There are great things to be enjoyed. God made us to be in community, but nothing is perfect, right? We see this effect of sin compromising at all points. And that's especially terrible, especially compelling when we see the effects of sin in the relationships between people who are being made like Jesus and who should be living like Jesus. You know, I know that there are some of us here today who have seen the deep pain that church conflict can can cause as Christians don't treat each other as Christ would. When we look at that, when we feel that, we can then lead, that can then lead us to reflect on the comfort that we can find, the knowledge that God didn't make the world to be like this, that he will remake the world even better than it was before, with no more hurt or sadness or pain ever. The good bits point us to what will be there for for eternity, and the bad bits help us to appreciate how glorious that will be. The fall then, finally and also, means that our world is broken. You know, remember that curse directed at Adam, the difficulty now had in ruling over the world. And we can see this broken relationship in our world in, in many things. You know, recently we saw floods, we see fires come through, famine, which causes immense hardships, as well as the damage which humanity inflicts upon the world. You know, we've seen the damage to our environment, the, the loss of species, the, the cruel way, the selfish way that humanity now often treats the world around us. Now, in Romans 8... We we read a reflection on this. It says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth 
right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, for our redemption of our bodies. Just like we feel the need for recreation, so does our world. And this can encourage us in our desire to care for our creation. Because when we feel sadness, even anger, at the state of our creation, of our world, it can motivate us to care for that world, to do better. But then when we look to Jesus' promises that creation waits eagerly to be remade, we can be encouraged to look forward to that day, knowing that our world not only was not made to feel the pain of sin and brokenness, but that it will be remade so that it, like us who trust in Jesus, will also never feel that pain again. And we can seek to do better in carrying out this first commission that God gave us, as we seek to show in little ways what his kingdom will look like forever. So, the fall means that our relationship to God is fractured. You know, it's not separated, but there is something which stops us from being reunited. I don't know if you've ever asked or ever heard the question, why doesn't God just make it all right? Why doesn't God just reveal himself to me right now? Why doesn't he just wipe it all clean right now? Well, part of the reason is that there is a real barrier between us and our God. And that barrier is human rebellion against God. That's why Jesus is, and what he has done is so essential. Because Jesus' death pays the price for our sin, for all of those who trust in him. And also, we see right from the beginning, right from the lowest point of humanity in Genesis 3, that God is constantly drawing us back to him. You know, that promise that the serpent's head would be crushed. God's mercy in sparing Adam and Eve. God's provision in keeping them clothing on the way and in sustaining his whole creation since, despite the fractures that run through it. Right from the beginning, God has not stopped caring and providing for his people. Promising to provide, to, to provide a solution to human sin and crush evil forever. And although we do feel the effects of sin in our world, and we will often wonder why God allows them, we can take comfort in the reality that he did not cause them and look forward to when he will fix them together. The fall means we can have hope because the world was not made to be like this. But in Jesus, we can see that the restoration has already begun and we can trust that it will be completed. So what is wrong with the world? Well, what is wrong is that our relationship with our God has been fractured and that affects every part of our existence. Ourselves, our relationships with those around, the whole creation, and most importantly, our closeness with the God who made us and loves us deeply. But the good news of the Bible, the big story of the Bible, tells us that the world was not meant to be this way and that God will and has and is fixing that problem. So when we think about all that is wrong with the world, when we feel overwhelmed by all that is wrong, let's always then look back and think about how God is at work making it right through Jesus. And let's join him in inviting others to be a part of his recreation.